Oregon kids, you guys can head out back. Uh, if you're new or visiting, just want to say a special welcome. Glad that you're here. Um, if you're looking for seats, might be some over here. Always the front row is available. Uh, it is the danger zone, I will warn you. Uh, but it's a good place to be. If you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. Just want to encourage you. You can always grab one, take one, keep it. Uh, don't have to return it. Uh, mark it up, underline it. It's our gift to you, and it's our way of just uh, hopefully giving you the one thing that we believe is perfect outside of Jesus Christ, God's Son, which is the Word of God, which perfects us as we read it. We believe that as we study the Word, as we sit under the Word, and as we sing the Word, and as we uh, remember the Word and pray the Word, that really it's more reading us than we are reading it. So uh, we're grateful that it does that, that it is unique in that way, and that it is divine in that way. Um, if you're dropping in right now, Ecclesiastes is the book that we're in. We usually take books of the Bible and just kind of walk through them because we want to see all that God would say. And so we believe that as you kind of teach through scriptures, not just kind of pulling random text, but actually opening up a Bible the way it would be read by anybody receiving that particular letter or that particular gospel, that it actually makes sense. I know that's a, a crazy thought, but the Bible's actually ordered in such a way, even in the letters themselves and the books themselves, to where you're going to see a streamline of thoughts that God might reveal to you ultimately the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so um, if you're wondering what, what you should look for in any book, it's Jesus. He is the, the cornerstone, the centerpiece, the, the radiance of what makes it beautiful. And so as we look at Ecclesiastes, we're, we're always seeing as we go, how does Jesus shine through all that Solomon, we believe, is the writer here, is laying before us. And so here's, here's why that's really important. I heard a beautiful analogy years ago when I was in seminary, and they talked about Old Testament, New Testament. They said you can view your Bible as really the Old Testament being kind of the the cathedral church with the stained glass windows. It's beautiful. You can, you can kind of see designs, but the New Testament is when the sun begins to rise and breaks through every window, and it transcends and shows beauty you never saw before. And so, um, really, you have in the Old Testament all these promises that are made, and they're namely going to be kept in the New Testament, which is Jesus Christ, where Jesus shows up and says, hey, I'm the, I'm the fulfillment of everything you were reading about. And so, even in a wisdom book like Ecclesiastes, you need to see see how does Jesus break through and shine through and make this extremely beautiful. And so we're going to continue to see that. It's been really fun um, kind of receiving your, your emails going, man, I, I, I didn't know that Jesus could be in a book like Ecclesiastes. I didn't know that we look for silhouettes like that. And just even to see you guys thinking and learning and growing in that way is uh, deeply and profoundly encouraging. And it's great because it's teaching you how to see your Bible in ways that God intends. And so um, Let's just take a moment. We believe that everything that happens um, in this place is from the Holy Spirit of God, that there is nothing within you that you could somehow leave here and go, hey, I, I'm going to make that make sense to me. I'm going to cause that to, to do things in me. We need God's Spirit alone to manifest himself and to actually ignite the kindling that we're setting in place right now. So can we ask him to do that? And then we'll dive into Ecclesiastes 3. God, thank you that we have the Bible. Thank you that the Scriptures are your written revelation to us. Thank you that we don't have to wander around in speculation, but that we have revelation that can guide us and give us direction. And God, thank you that meaning and purpose is most profoundly seen and had in what you did through your son, Jesus Christ. Might you encourage um, the downtrodden this morning. Might burdens be lifted. Might we see sorrow as having meaning. Might we see, as we see injustice and pain and suffering and oppression, might we see that you are a good, just judge who will make all things right in the end. God, protect us from playing the role of God. Protect us from being the judge when we can't. And Father, would you now do what only you can do through the Spirit's power in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, Ecclesiastes is a book, I tell you all the time, it was the book I was reading when I was in college going through um, books of the Bible, the one that I hit that just bothered me because this guy, Solomon, is just basically going to write you and ask you questions more than he's going to give you answers. And he's constantly writing you questions and laying before you questions so that it might stir you and cause you to get to the ultimate answers, which is, hey, if, if this is all there is under the sun, if there is no life after death, if there is no heaven and hell, if there is no good good, righteous, all-knowing, all-wise, all-weaving of history God who makes a verdict in the end. If he does not do that, then all of our life, all that we do is really meaningless. It has no value to it. It has no purpose to it. There is nothing that we should actually really enjoy to the fullest extent because in the end, you can't make a lasting dent in anything. And so he's continuing to show us, you got to think deeply about these things. Have enough intellectual honesty to say, okay, hey, uh, I've never really considered this or considered this. And so he's going to ask you the hard questions. Now, what most of us want to do is ignore the questions, right? We want to suppress the questions because what it does is it, it bubbles up in you things that you don't like, but God's saying, I'm after your joy. I'm after the, the best for your soul. Ultimately, the preservation of it eternally, right? And not damning it eternally if you reject my name and reject my son. And so he's going to show you how life can be found. So we should pay attention to this man who had more stuff than you will ever own, who accumulated more wisdom that you will ever have, who experienced more things than you will ever experience at the end of the day, sits you down on his lap like grandpa and says, hey, pay attention, let me teach you some lessons, okay? And so that's what he's doing for us. And so if you miss his method, you'll miss his message altogether. You have to understand that that is what he is after. He's not after laying before you the details. He wants you to understand those and look for those and clarify those. Amen? Okay, so, so here's what happens. He's been looking at history. Last week we saw he looks at um, what most thoughtful people have seen, just the, the random chaos and madness of seasons and change, and how do we view the, the bad seasons with the good seasons, and we got into bits of suffering, and how suffering is not just punishment, it's to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus, that all that we face is not punitive as his children, but formative, and so um, we saw great delight in that. We were encouraged with that, but he's going to continue to say, hey, as I continue to see the, the seasons of change, I saw wickedness and injustice everywhere. So what do you do with that? That's what he's going to get after this morning, is what do you do with the issue of oppression and suffering and evil if there is no final day of judgment? How do you rationalize that? How do you rationalize your meaning and your existence and your, um, all that you do? And so here he's going to see that it appears as though under the sun there is no justice and why that drives us to God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, this is what he writes. Moreover, he's continuing his thought from last week. Moreover, I saw that under the sun, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. <laughs> Uh, so Solomon's just describing what we've all encountered in this life, right? And he's saying, and we've all seen this. Look, there are good people and bad people. There are people in the justice system that do well, that are righteous, that are upholding the law. But, but we know there's no perfect system because we ourselves are not perfect. There's only one perfect man. That man is Jesus who lived and died as a ransom for sin. So we can't uh, believe, we can't assume that we're going to find a perfect system of justice under the sun. Now, you've got to remember, every time he says under the sun, he He's talking as if God didn't break through human history and say something. 
Okay, so he's not saying this is a fact. He's saying, hey, listen, you've got to consider all of these things if there's no revelation given to you in the scripture, if God does not reveal to himself to you in creation, if God does not reveal himself to you through the, the person and work of his son. If he doesn't do all those things, then man, there's got to be some reason for all this or no reason at all. So under the sun, under heaven is so important to read it that way. So every time he says that, it's the assumption of you've received no revelation from God. You're walking in your own ingenuity and brain cells that will get you nowhere or that God has not spoken and intervened and entered human history. And so here as he's saying all of this, he says, I see no justice. Now, um, most of us know good stories, right? But for every like one good story, you got 50 bad ones. Right? I mean, you, either you are living in a cave, either you're living alone, don't want explanations, either you have no cable and internet, or you're just ignorant to the world around you if you do not see that when you turn on the news, for every one good story, there's 50 to 100 tragic ones. Um, and this is just the scene that he continues to see. And when you hear a good story, right, there's something that wells up in your soul that goes, this is how it should be, Right? Like when you finally see like that one clip on News 7 at 8 o'clock, well, you're like, can you go a little longer? You know, next, plane crashes right into the harbor. I mean, it's just like, can we stay a little bit longer on that woman who was cared for by that man who was protected in this aggressive nature of this criminal entering this place? Or we, we would love to hear more of those because in your soul something wells up that goes, man, this is right. This, this is how I long for it to be. I long for there to be a place of justice. But life under the sun is filled with evil. Because we were made in the image and likeness of God, we have a conscience. We know there should be right and wrong. We know when injustice is not happening. No one has to try to figure that out. That's second nature to you because our God is a perfect God, a perfect God of justice. But even, he's saying, even though there's justice systems, I saw wickedness even in those places. So there's good cops, there's good lawyers, there's good judges, but there's not a unanimous nature of them. Right, because not everybody is, no one is perfect, and so you can't have a, even a perfect system under the sun. That's why you've got bad people walking the streets and good people locked up. We all know that, right? We know that they've made error. We know that not everything is perfectly straight. He said a couple weeks ago, that's why all is crooked and has to be made straight in some way, shape, or form. You don't need to go far to see this. When you turn on the TV or listen to the radio, um, what's normative is definitely not Chicago's flourishing. Everyone from every nation, tribe, and race is just getting along, having meals at one of those houses. Christian marriages are lasting 50 plus years. Everyone's at their bedside praying for three hours before bed. You're not, you're not reading that news, right? That's not the, the, the normative scene on the news when you turn on the channel. It's this person ruined this, this person beheaded these people, this plane crashed here, this happened on this street in this neighborhood at this hour, this tragic, this, 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 this. And your soul all the while is going, justice, I want justice. Oppression, wickedness. My heart's constantly wrestling with this crookedness that isn't made straight yet. And so Solomon's just reiterating what he is seeing. Now, here's the deal. Um, you and I have to do something with it. 
right? I mean, we have to do something with injustice. We have to do something with the oppression we see. We have to do something with the suffering that we walk in. Because if you, listen, if you don't buy into something, eventually it's going to hit you and you're going to die and crash under it, either in bitterness, rage, anger, discontentment, whatever it is. So I want to walk with you through and show you how Solomon's going to try to get you to see if you don't deal with it, you will die under your own ignorance, You have to actually look it in the face and say, either there's a framework for this, how to walk in this, how to understand this, or there's not, and there's nothing. There's no meaning to anything that you do. There's no meaning to even the injustice that you see, and even your pursuit of wanting to see justice be found. And so, you know, when I was uh, in college, and I've shared a lot about how I had my crisis of faith, read through the scripture, God revealed to me what you, what you say about yourself and how I was just trying to form thoughts and form understandings and form theologies and form all those things. And as I'm going through, listen, um, one of the prevailing things that happened, I, I didn't have to live long enough, even though I was still a, a very young man, I didn't have to live long enough to see that suffering came quick, that death came quick, that this life is not far from perfect, that it is totally crooked, that there is not perfect justice, and yet I had to do something with that. And so uh, we began to have dialogues, and I began to talk with people, and especially entering the pastoral ministry, you talk with people all the time with varying views, varying thoughts, varying reasons for why they believe and see the world as they see it. And there's really kind of a, a common thread of about four or five that seem to always bubble up. Now, some of these have some big names. Don't worry about it. Just, just, learn, just understand the premise of them, okay? So, and, and there's problems in all of them that, that Solomon's ultimately going to show us can be found in ultimately what the scriptures say about themselves. So um, just a couple. You have the belief of monism. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. And this is basically the life you live is just a real, a, really an illusion. A lot of new age theories hold to this. So, so that means suffering is just an illusion. So it's not really pain. There's no real injustice. It's just something that you are believing wrongly about. So just strengthen your mind more over the matter that you see because it's not really real. It's not really happening. Now, the problem with this is um, what happens when you walk through the deepest, darkest night of the soul? It just trivializes it, right? It does nothing for the longings that your heart feel. It does nothing for the real pain that you're experiencing. It more mocks it and says, just don't believe it's happening. Just hide under your pillow. Try to escape it, right? Um, The next ones, you've heard of the Stoics probably if you grew up studying history at all right? Um, Stoicism, the Stoics, this is a very um, common thing that people uh, love to get at when when you talk about suffering and things like that. Stoicism just basically says, um, yes, suffering is real, oppression is real, injustice is real. We can feel it, we can see it, we can handle it in all those ways, but um, it's really senseless because the universe was built by chance. So because the universe was built by chance, then all that you see, all this injustice, all this suffering, all this sorrow, it just kind of is happenstance, so it's not really uh, something you should deal with. So you know what? Just avoid it or just kind of endure it. Well, that's encouraging. I mean, you turn on the news, yeah, just try to avoid it, right? I mean, just try to move to an island where you don't have to see anything or live like a monk in the hills. You don't have to talk to any human beings or just try to endure it. Just put it on your back and just suffer with it knowing that nothing will be made right in the end, but just enjoy your endurance. Where does that get you? These are just the the prevailing thoughts, right? So monism, that kind of mocks your desire for joy and love and justice. And stoicism really just destroys it because you're not gonna be able to find it because it's senseless in of itself. And to be honest, 
you really end up just going nuts because you try to numb yourself to pain, ultimately just dehumanizing you and your very existence. Um, the other one that, that we discussed was this idea of dualism. Um, this is a real interesting one, and I've heard lots of people talk about this one. This is where um, you have good and bad in the world. So we'd all say, yeah, I see good and evil. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm bored, and I, I would acknowledge that I see good and I see evil, but they're just these forces that oppose each other, and one is not really better or more powerful than the other, so in the end, neither really wins. Okay, so that's, that's a little odd because then you think that, okay, my answer now is I can now believe in a God who's good because he doesn't have anything bad in him, but he can't control it. He can't be over it because he can't be greater than it. So in some way, where do you get any basis for compassion or justice? You don't have any. Like, where do you find any meaning at all? I mean, you have no basis for morality. You have no basis for any system, right? If in the end, both just keep fighting each other and neither wins, then how is there any greater good that rules and reigns who's infinitely wise, who knows all things, who can create perfect justice in the end? Listen, if you don't have a God who's in control, if you don't have a judgment day, then how do you know what is more fundamental to your reality? Good or bad? Like, which one do you go with? I'm just going to live bad then. I'm just going to live good then. There's no place for it. We talked about existentialism a lot. I can't even say that word. So when we used to talk about it in college, we'd be like, shut up, guys. Because they were so smart. Like, just, just tell me what it means. So we can dialogue, Right? And, and we've mentioned this a lot where you just kind of defy suffering, defy injustice. You're just going to live with purpose even though you believe it's senseless. I mean, there's just lots of ways you try to deal with this. But that problem is the same, right? You don't have any basis for compassion, morality. The last one that, that I really liked is, is karma. I mean, you guys know a lot of people that, that discuss karma. And this is really the romanticist. This is the guy that says, hey, okay, good people get really good lives, bad people get really bad lives. And you're, you're constantly trying to kind of rewrite the script for yourself. So if there's any suffering in your life, if you see any injustice, if you see any oppression, it's because you've done something, right, that needs to be made right. So suffering can never be positive. It always has to be punishment. This is actually, if you go into the Old Testament, you see aspects of this. You see Job's friends come to him. What do they do? They don't say as monism says, hey, just don't believe it exists. They don't say as the Stoics say, hey, uh, just endure it. They say, hey, you've got to confess it because there must be unrepentant sin in you, Job. You're suffering. Things are going bad because you must be a really bad guy. And Job's going, no, I know God to be good and I know my heart is clean. I know my conscience is pure and this is the cards that God has dealt me to grow me in greater love and refuge for who he is in his character and name and renown, not because I am something, but because he is something. So, so if you walk in this world where you think suffering and injustice is only forms of punishment, then there's something wrong with your view of God. You're really longing for a day of judgment without even realizing it. You're longing for somebody to come along and say, this is how it will all be in the end. That all will be made right. I mean, a real problem for that too, when, when I speak with people who discuss karma, it's, it's really an arrogant place to be. Because you really believe there's no purpose at all in hardship. You believe there could be no benefit at all in hardship. So any type of hardship you walk in, it must be because you're being punished. It could never be because you're growing up or being refined or pruned or shaped into something more beautiful, which is the story of God in the scriptures and the ways that he treats us as his kids, right? 
I mean, you're kids, right? I mean, punishment is not because you hate them. Punishment is because you're trying to form things in them that those kids would not have otherwise, right? And so we begin to see the world in this way. And so here, here's the thing. Um, if you hold to any of those views outside of the Christian view, there are, there are so many more you could have. If you hold to those, eventually you'll be crushed under it in your anger and get nowhere when it happens. When life hits you, when you turn on the TV, when you listen to the radio, when you face the inexhaustible rat race that it is of the, just the cycle of madness and the seasons of change where you see the decay, you see the turmoil, you see the injustice, you see the oppression, you see the suffering, you will have nothing to stand on. You'll either numb yourself till you go crazy or blame or try to avoid it or defy it instead of looking at it honestly saying, this is injustice, my heart hates it, my soul wants something to make all of this right. And that's why he says in the next verse, he's going to show you all those things dehumanize you. But here's what actually is great. Even though it's difficult to deal with evil and suffering from a Christian lens, a Christian framework, it's impossible for everybody else. So here's the good news. Verse 17, I said in my heart, right, he, he always shifts people. He, he goes from like a secularist to a humanist to then a, a Christian. So here he's in the, the Christian framework. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Here, here's the issue. Um, by nature, we all want justice. By nature, all of us want things to be made right. If we're still crooked and even the courts are imperfect and can't make it straight, is there a hope for perfect justice to happen? That's the question that Solomon's asking. And he answers it in this rhetorical thought. And he says, God will eventually handle all injustice, all evil, all illness, all sickness, all oppression, if not in this life, in the life to come. God's going to do it. God's going to enact that. There's only one who gives perfect justice, and that's the ruler and reigner of all things who lives over the sun, not just under the sun. I mean, even the best systems of justice can't care for everybody, right? Because they don't have the infinite mind of God that knows every deed and motive of the heart like God does. So every system of justice is incapable of ultimately enacting the fullest extent of justice. And that longing within us is only ultimately satisfied by God who in the end gives the perfect verdict. And no one gets to stand up and go, I think that one was wrong, judge. Did you make Pluto? No. Okay, sit down. Right? I mean, no one can say it. I mean, did you make the human race? Did you create everything out of nothing? Have you always existed? Okay, sit down. Courtroom's mine. He finally has the courtroom where we can't speak, which is actually a very good thing. That's why I love sermons, right? You guys can't speak. I mean, you can. I like the amens. I like the mm-hmm. This is why this is all what Solomon's getting to push us towards. He's pushing us to see that if there's no true justice at the end of all this, guys, what's the point? It's all meaningless. It's all vanity. There's no point to everything that you see, everything that you endure. The scriptures will constantly call us to live. What? And let of a real, full, accurate judgment. Not this ethereal, we're going to be floating around dodging God and his judgments, but we will be standing in spiritual soul, united with actual physical body, and we will actually be judged. And he will right every wrong. And he will show the script in its fullness. And no one will get away with anything. 
That's reality. That's what's true. Verse 18, he's going to explain this and expand on this. Look at this. I said in my heart, this is why he says this, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts are the same. Beasts is just another word for animals. All is vanity. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the animals. All go to one place. That's not heaven and hell. That's the grave. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, or the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So Solomon's thinking. He's going, okay, hold on a second. And he's writing in his memoir, so we hear his thoughts. Okay, this is so interesting. I mean, really, if you look at systems of justice, you look at death being the end for all of us, if, there, if we're no different from the animals, if there's no life after this, then what's really the meaning of anything? I mean, if both of our lots are the grave, then what is the advantage? See, um, a lot of us have been taught that we have advantages over the animals, but here Solomon's saying, what's your advantage? That you have fingers and not paws? Because when you die, both are going to disintegrate in the dust. Both are from dust, be brought to dust. So he says, what is happening in this whole lot of life that I see? Okay, so you have a brain, you can build, you can go, you can do things, but your lot is the same as your pet hamster nosy And the end of the day. You're both going to die, you're both going to disintegrate. So none of them have come back to tell me, the, the horse that arrived my chariot has never come back and told me, hey, what's after life? So how can you say something's not fair if there's nothing after this life? How can you say there's meaning if you don't know what comes comes next. That's where he's pushing your heart. That's where he's pushing your soul. That's why he says there's no difference in the end. If you believe only what's under the sun, there's nothing, no difference in the end from you and your pet hamster and yourself. There's no advantage. If there's no heaven and hell, if there's no eternity, if there's no judgment, Listen, I don't know where your animals go at the end of the day. We could do hundreds of discussions, but the, Solomon is not making a case whether Bambi eternally flourishes. That's not at all what he's doing. He's trying to make a case for you so that you would see that you have to think honestly about life and about humanity and about suffering and about injustice. He's saying not only is there evil, but you can't prove, if you can't prove there's something after this, then don't try to live like there is if intellectually you don't believe that. Don't long for justice to happen with the perfect judge of the earth if that's not actually going to happen. He's pushing for our longings of justice to be understood, right? He wants you to clarify those thoughts. One of the deepest longings in the human heart Friends, the thing that sits down at the bottom of your soul, one of your deepest wants, if we're all honest in this room, is for a world of total and complete end to all unfairness. My son Jackson, he's four. You know one of his favorite things to say to mom and dad? That's not fair, right? If you have kids, that's what they say, right? That's not fair. I know. And what do you say? L life's not fair? Yeah, you do. Don't act like you don't. We all say it. 
We all say it. You, oh, I've never said it. Yeah, you have. All right? God is, when I stand before the judgment seat, I'll ask him, right? So he sees all. So we all, right, as you get older, you're like, well, yeah, life's not fair. Right? In your moment of sin, your moment of weakness, you go, yeah, Jackson, life's not fair, right? I mean, we all know, right, this is amazing. My four-year-old son who's made in the image of likeness of God is actually testifying to cosmic realities that are, that are woven in him without even realizing it. That he absolutely wants and desires fairness and justice, right? He knows there's a need for justice. He knows that the world he lives in is not totally straight and is crooked. Um, this is the problem with the reincarnation idea, right? Um, nobody remembers what they did in their previous life to make it right now. You ever talk to someone who believes in that? It's it so much fun. Who were you in your previous life? I don't know. What'd you do? I don't know. So, so you're trying to do good in this life to right the wrong in your previous life, but you don't know where you were, or what you did, or who you know. Okay, well, this is a tragic cycle you're in, right? I mean, how do you know what to do? How do you know how to act? How do you know how, because that's justice for them. That's a form of justice that will make everything right is in some way I'm now getting back at who I once was in a previous life. And it's just this tragic cycle that we keep playing. It's this whole thing that happens with karma as well, right? I mean, how does karma play out on Jesus? I mean, the best, most meek, most humble, most kind, most righteous man who ever lived who suffered the worst fate. Killed the hands of lawless men, absorbing the wrath of God for sin, crucified on a cross, sword through his side. How does karma work out for him? Even if you just believe Jesus is historical, which you do, everyone would say he was a godly, good, upright teacher. So why did he suffer the worst fate? Let's think a little bit. So he goes into verse four, chapter four, verse one, and says this again. He just keeps just reiterating this. Again, I saw all the oppression that are, that's done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Solomon says, you know what else isn't fair? If you've lived long enough, the inhumane ways that people are living, eating, drinking, and dying. Many of you are in the medical field. Um, you've been on the front lines of tragic oppression, evil, injustice. You've seen things. You've seen the effects of it. I've even sat down with you for coffee and say, I, I'm even in certain situations where my heart is just longing for this is not right this is evil this is wicked how could this create be created how could this happen i'm longing for this situation to be fully rectified and the frustration that that sits in your soul is i can't to its fullest extent i am not saying in any place of this that we should not pursue justice that we should not pursue caring for the oppressed and the orphan and the widow and the marginalized that is those are clear calls of scripture i'm saying in the end if you think that you can play god and ultimately do away with it all here you're just running on the treadmill and frustration and blame will be benchmarks of your spiritual life until you live under a good weight of the sovereign God who ultimately enacts justice in the end as we walk and live as his agents of grace here. But let's walk the line rightly. Let's not have expectations that are only met in the future judgment. Let's not expect future rights that are only met in the future judgment. So he's showing here 
Think about the outrage you feel at suffering and wrongdoing towards you. Think about the outrage you feel in your heart when you see people oppressed or treated wrongly. Now, here's the irony in this whole thing. None of us wants justice for ourselves. Right? We want mercy. But we want justice everywhere else. I mean, I've never seen anyone in a court. Watch Judge Judy. I've never seen a Judge Judy where the guy goes, man, Judge Judy, give me justice, man. Sentence me for 10 years. No one's wanting that. They're going to be merciful to me. Everyone sits under the judge going, hey, I want mercy. I don't want justice because the person who's guilty realizes what his hand is really due. We realize, right, as Christians that we are fully guilty, that judgment and just payment would be us eternally in hell, separated from God, and that God would be good and wise in doing that. And God is crazy merciful and kind in saying, I will be the just judge of all the earth and suffer unjustly for you and take your sin and shame, be your substitute in your place for your sin, and let me walk in freedom of life with you. That's crazy. That the just judge of all the earth treats us who should be treated rightly and justly in hell says, hey, no, I'm going to be the one who suffers unjustly. In fact, Jesus is the only human being who suffered the greatest injustice that will ever be seen under the sun. The most perfect man, the perfect man who ever lived suffering the worst fate. And so he's trying to get us to see and understand and feel this frustrating reality for us. We should love that Jesus is merciful, that he's kind, that he's loving, that he's forgiving. We should love those things about him, but are you not thankful that he is always perfectly just? Are you not? The problem is, for some of us, He's not doing it right now, right? And so you're miserable and you're bitter because you're trying to have judgment day today when you can't. And judgment day is coming, but you're not living in light of a God who ultimately will make all things right, who vengeance his mind declares the Lord. You're living as if it's on you to make everything right and correct everyone's soul. God sees it. God knows it, and some of you have been dealt life and given hardship and injustice that is wicked and tragic and hard and painstaking. And can you see God through the face of Jesus Christ look at you lovingly, compassionately, justly, and say, hey, I'm going to write all of this. No one gets away with anything, even those who have perished you think somehow they made it off clean. I'm the just judge of all the earth, Genesis. Won't the just judge of the earth do all that is right? It's a powerful statement. It's where Solomon's trying to get us. Because most of us go, man, why isn't he doing something? Why is he doing something now, right? Why isn't he changing this? Why isn't he healing this? Why isn't he in, in Africa doing this? Why isn't he delivering the inhumane ways that people live in Somalia in this? Why isn't he going to the Sudan and doing this? Why isn't he doing any of this? Now, part of it is you need a bigger view of God that realizes that you're going to be on the dock as well, that you're not going to sit at the end of all things and go, hey, God, why'd you do this? Why'd you do this? He's going to sit you on the dock and go, if you were so loving and compassionate, why don't you go do something? But also another part of this whole idea is 
that we just simply don't like that his timing is different than ours, if we're honest. And for God, rolling back to last week, timing is everything. There is a time for everything under heaven. And there's a time for everything over the sun in heaven. And he knows when that day is. He he knows when that is coming. He knows when he will make all of those things right. Remember, the future is not something that God just knows. It's a place that God physically stands. He's not just anticipating. He's already orchestrated it. He's already existing there, and he's establishing it there. He's not like you and me. Remember when, when Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, fascinating part of the Gospel of Luke. Um, the demon-possessed man. If you guys are with us, we did Luke for two years. Some of you guys are like, man, that's, that's hurt my memory, Pastor Mike. I get, well, well back, let me help you. Back then, he comes to the demon-possessed man, and, and the demons say something that is absolutely incredible. Right? Jesus looks at them. They know exactly who Jesus is, and they say, hey, you can't throw us into hell yet. It's not the time yet. So what are you going to do to us? So what does he do? He throws them in the pigs. The pigs run off the cliff. Even the demons know that God's time for final judgment is set. And they go, I know you can't do this yet. I know you can't. It actually says, are you going to torment us before the time? The time being the final judgment. So what are you going to do? Today is not the day when everything is put right, Jesus. So we're still on a leash. Where are you not trusting God's timing with justice? Where are you bitter and angry when you don't have to be? You know, one of the most beautiful things about what we're doing right now when we gather here, because I hear this a lot when, we, when, I, when I chat with you, is um, this, this saying, and it's not, it's, it's genuine, I, I understand what you're saying, because I, I agree with, in, in a degree of what you're saying, but it's this idea of, man, I love that I get to just escape reality and walk into this place and worship and hear and sing and be united and pray, and yeah, but, but, but hold on a second. <laughs> Did you know that when you come into this place, you're not escaping reality, you're walking into the most clear profound reality there is. You realize that? You're not leaving reality. Man, we come in here, we long to come in here and sit under the word of God to gather with the saints and sing praises and pray and commune and and talk and be encouraged because you're actually being, you're actually hearing and seeing and declaring things that are absolutely sure, absolutely certain, absolutely real. Your job, the things that you think, feel, the sin, the, the lies, culture, TV, media, yeah, those are not reality in the extent of they lay before you the truth. We come in here to gather as God. God's people to say, let's be reminded of what's actually reality, right? Actually, reality is there is a just judge who will make all things right. Reality is monism doesn't work, dualism doesn't work, stoicism doesn't work, romanticism doesn't work, all these things don't work. What works is Jesus Christ, right? I mean, that's the only thing that will ultimately mend the frustrations in your heart. So you don't leave reality, you enter into reality every single Sunday. That's why I can't wait for Sundays, not because I I just get to preach even though it's awesome. Not because I get to see you even though you're awesome. I love Sundays because I get to be reminded with you of things that are true and real and sure and certain. Amen? 
Right. So that is why we're here. So be careful when you think and you buy the lie and it creeps into your soul and says, oh, finally, I can escape reality out there. No, no, no. Be overjoyed. Be thrilled that you're walking into the most real place that exists with real truth, with real realities, that when there is a spiritual war before us, we know that is not ethereal, that is tangible, that is active, that is happening. And so we are being reminded of things in our life. We're reorienting our souls. That's why outside of Sunday's community matters. That's why outside of this, you get your face in your Bible matters. That's why outside of this, you have a brother or a sister remind you of what's true matters. Because the onslaught occurs the moment you leave these doors, right? I mean, it's just like boxing gloves everywhere. Same for me as a pastor. I'm no different than you. I walk into the same sinful, broken, fractured world you do with the same sinful, fractured, crooked heart that you have with a good, straight, perfect Jesus who upholds us and sustains us and keeps us reminded of what's true, what's coming, what's sure. So friends, we are in reality we are hearing of what is actually true. We are being reminded of things to protect us from deterring. You know, I don't know every reason God delays in judgment. I know none of us do, but I can tell you one thing. You know what I am thankful for? That judgment didn't happen before 1999 when I believe I met Jesus. Even though I grew up hearing the gospel, I never heard it. Or I was dead to it. Or I was, and I may have had, I may have gotten saved before. I don't know. I don't have a day. But I believe that at that time, God was converting my heart. I was understanding repentance. I was understanding sin and his holiness. I was understanding that I belittled his name. And I am just so grateful that God in his love delayed. And out of love was patient. And he said, hey, the day of judgment is not yet because I am saying I am patient for those who are perishing. I mean, aren't you glad that God delays in his judgment? Aren't you glad that, that, that it has not come yet in the sense that some of you are in this room and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ and he is delaying judgment maybe for you just to sit here and hear the truth of the scriptures so that he might call you to himself, call you to his glorious name and renown for the good of your soul and glory of himself. Isn't that wonderful? So it can be a good thing that God delays in judgment. It can be a good thing. His timing is perfect. So any philosophy that denies a day of judgment, you can't build any society or belief around. You can't. Because what's your basis for any type of morality or system of justice? It's all totally subjective for you. So whether it's a mass murder or stealing or being kind and loving, it's just electrochemical fields that you get to choose what does bad mean and what does good mean instead of the law being written on our hearts, being made in the image and likeness of God, longing for justice in our souls. Now, the ultimate and timely answer to wickedness and justice and suffering really is the incarnation of Jesus. I mean, that's what, man, Solomon is pushing you to the silhouette of Jesus to where you have to grab him. 
I mean, you're just, you're wanting it. I mean, you're wanting to feel it and see it and taste it. And he's just pushing you to the place where the only ultimate answer for wickedness and justice suffering is the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Every other belief system says it's nuts that God would come and suffer, that a God would leave his dwelling place and be mocked and scorned. Every other belief would say that, but suffering's at the heart of the Christian message, Right? I mean that our Savior Jesus suffered, it would taste suffering for us. So when we walk through suffering, he identifies in its deepest sense that he bore suffering for us in our place. Some of you guys think it's just illogical that, that God would come to earth and take part in unjust suffering. Be subject to the injustice of history. It might be illogical, but friend, it is wonderful. It is beautiful because he's taken part in our suffering. So here's the thing. We no longer have to walk around going, why this, why this, why am I experiencing this, why am I suffering this way? What we really say now is, why in the world would you let it happen to you? Why would you let it happen to your son? Why would you leave glory and suffer yourself willingly? All of a sudden, the injustice is flipped on its head because you're going, you want to talk about injustice? It's God making himself man, incarnating in human flesh, living this life for sinful people that belittle his name and mock his glory and saying, I, the just judge, will suffer unjustly for you and let you off clean and give you a future home and give you my spirit and give you righteousness. Incredible. Incredible how God just dismantles our silly thoughts and now his death brings us life and now your soul can take a deep breath. Two questions to close. Uh, one good one, practically, where you, where you live. Um, who, who in your life is walking through hardship and needs you being an agent of grace and identify with them in their suffering? Because here's what's amazing. Paul's going to say, you're literally the extension of Jesus himself. Like, like we actually, he aligns with us in our suffering. We feel, he feels what we feel, and then we're agents of grace, agents of change. We now walk with others as literal extensions of his very body. So when you love like Jesus, comfort like Jesus, pray like Jesus, send a text like Jesus, when you encourage like Jesus, you realize you are being a very agent of grace, part of God's plan and part of God's refuge for other saints and walking alongside them in their hardship and suffering and injustice, reminding them of what's true, reminding of them what's coming. Who can you do that for? Maybe some of you guys, people are coming to mind. You can come alongside and say, hey, there's hope. There's a just judge. There's life after death. This isn't all there is. Future grace is coming. You know what's amazing? If you look at Jesus in the garden, Jesus in the garden, right? We looked at it in Luke briefly on Good Friday. But Jesus in the garden, I mean, he is, he is suffering. 
right? And here's what's interesting. Jesus in the garden, he's suffering. He's going, man, God, take this cup from me, the cup being the wrath of God poured out on him for the sins of mankind. And he's going, man, if there's any other way, can we do it? Can I escape this? Can I endure, can I endure this? Can I avoid this in his mind? But what does he do? He doesn't choose any of the prevailing thoughts. He doesn't choose any of those ways that my friends and I discussed. He chooses to absolutely use his suffering. He leans it into God. He doesn't waste it. And he uses it for his good and the glory of his Father. So we don't waste sorrows, friends. Suffering's not meaningless. Injustice isn't meaningless. It's to be leaned into God so that you can lean more fully into his character, into his glory, into his name and renown so your heart is at rest and he plays the role he plays and you can walk and live and function as an ambassador of his grace. So there might be sorrows in your life that you just need to lean into God. That you need to use, not try to endure it, not try to defy it, not try to deny them, but use them. Use them. Ask God, like we said last week, man, conform me more to the image of your son. Make me more like Jesus. Give me the courage of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. May keep weaving those things into me out of your great love for me. The last one is this. Um, One of my prevailing fears is that many of you have heard the gospel a million times and never heard it. And and I know this because we discuss this every week. I love it. Through coffee, through email. That that you hear this good news of the gracious saving work of Jesus, but you never really hear it. Now, it's usually kind of two ways. Um, the, The first is this. The first is you hear about his omnipresence. You hear about his omniscience. You hear about him being a just judge. You hear about wrath being right. You hear about him holding every man account for his actions. No deed goes unnoticed. No sin gets unpunished. In the sense of we all stand guilty and condemned. So we all hear that reality. And here's what we do in our wicked hearts. We try to give Jesus a makeover because we believe that he's lovely, he's beautiful, he's good. He can't possibly be judgmental. He can't possibly be wrath-filled. He can't possibly make what is wrong right. In that sense, that seems too harsh. That seems too bad. So let's take away his sword. Let's take away his anger. Let's take away his wrath. Let's do away with that. So now people will be more attracted to him and think, oh, isn't he beautiful and lovely? Isn't he fuzzy like the Easter bunny? Let's cuddle up with him and sit on his lap and take pictures, right? So we think that's the story of the gospel. Here's what you're doing. It is a crazy, absurd work because his beauty, his goodness, his glory, his creativity is inextricably tied to his wrath and judgment. Because if you stand in opposition to his glory, his goodness, his beauty, and he does nothing to thwart you for that, he is at best indifferent to sin and at worst cares nothing for the rebellion, pain, and sorrow that your rebellion causes. And so we say, well, I'm just going to keep believing in this God that I don't need to repent to, I don't need to pursue, but a God that I'll just change. And I hear these truths about this God who is good and just and loving, and I'll make and change around and shift different places to make my little story that in the end, friends, is an absurd exercise. You can't take away either of those. If you want a God who is beautiful, beautiful, holy, good, kind, you have got to keep the total justice of God. You have to. Because otherwise, he's anything but just when he lets people trample on his glory and tread his planet. It's one. The second is, 
we have this confusing understanding of confession and repentance. Because every time you see the, the, the word judgment in the scriptures, often tied to judgment is this word repentance. Very interesting. Repent for judgment will come. John the Baptist comes inaugurating repentance for salvation to the Pharisees. Here's the thing. Um, I don't know when this happens, but we hear the truth preached, we hear the word preached, and it's something in the ways of we don't think repentance is necessary. So we think that it's not godly sorrow over sin, it's just simply coming clean. And that's the end of it. No, confession's the beginning. Repentance is the process. So, so you not only confess sin, which is a beautiful, right Christian doctrine that we do where we confess to God, we confess to others. There's healing in us. God, I belittled your name. God, I'm not excusing this. God, I have sinned. God, I've done this. God, I've done this. And then we walk towards the Jesus that saved us in the first place that keeps us in the first place. But some of us just confess sin and go, oh, I feel better. It's off my chest. I can walk now. But you don't repent. You just keep wandering around in your cul-de-sac. You don't turn to Jesus. Repentance is turning back to him. That's why you will see in the scriptures this idea of wrath it's an amazing study because it really wakes you up a little bit and is really good in you fighting sin and wanting to walk in repentance and you see his active wrath and passive wrath right active is everything you were taught in Sunday school fire from heaven God hates people he's blowing stuff up Nebuchadnezzar's an animal you just got all these different things happening okay that's good God in his mercy wakes you up for a reason in his kindness. But then the other is so terrifying, which is my ultimate fear, which is this weird thing outlined in Romans where God continues to say, come back to me, return to me, repent of your sin. I'm a good God, I'm gracious. You go, nope, I know better, I'm smarter. Even though I'm the creative being, you're the maker of all things, I think I can figure this out, so you keep chasing it. He comes back to you, whispers in your ear, gives you a sermon, sends you another Christian brother or sister who cares for you, calls you to repentance, tells you, hey, better watch out, better not touch that flame that's gonna kill you that's going to destroy you and you continue to say no God I'm smarter than you God I know what's going on I should be God it's idolatry worship and then eventually he says fine go chase it to where you chase it to a degree that you are numbed by your sin to a degree where you will never return and repent to the saving work of Jesus Christ and he says fine I'll just let you go on your lusts and passions even though I keep warning you, even though I keep calling you, even though I keep wooing you, and my fear is that some of you are dangerously close to that place. So it's not just sitting down with your brother or sister, your friend confessing sin. It's okay, let's walk now. Let's push headlong into Jesus Christ. Let's, let's lean into him. Let's fight the fight of faith. Let's put our sin to death. I need help. Now, there's grace in that, there's mercy in that, there's love in that, there's, there's, there's friendship in that. But let's keep moving now. Confession's not the end, it's the beginning. The gospel of grace is a gospel of repentance. It's why our best fathers of the faith say, hey, repentance is for the unbeliever and the believer. And the best news is that we repent of our sin and trust the work of Jesus, not our own work. That he's a just judge who can say it on the day of judgment, clean, spotless, blameless, because of the work of my son, Jesus Christ. And because he kept trusting in the work of Jesus Christ for his spotless, blameless, above reproach life before me. Let's hope that God might not let some of us go in his passive wrath, all to bless you with Western success, ultimately to lead you to torment for all of eternity. Just ask him to wake us up. God, thank you 
that justice is coming, that you are a judge that sits on the throne that will do away with sin, injustice, sorrow, oppression once and for all and make all things right. God, in this moment, would your spirit make clear what you need to make clear? Would you illuminate hearts where you need to illuminate hearts? Would you give sight where you need to give sight? Would you give hearing where you need to give hearing? Father, I pray for those this morning who are walking the dangerous line of playing around with your holiness and playing around with sin and playing around with the pursuit that, God, you show them the deepest, most profound mercy in the cross of Jesus Christ, that they would see that they can have Christ and pursue Christ and enjoy Christ. God, would you help those who are suffering? Would you help those who are suffering from injustice and oppression? Would you encourage them? God, show them if there are steps they need to take, God, you still call us to act justly now? But God, would you, would you give them wisdom as to where is it to hold off? When is it to go forward? Where is it where I might leave those things in the hands of the good, just God who will ultimately and perfectly and most thoroughly deal with justice in the end? Would you root out bitterness and resentment in our hearts where we desire you to be playing the role of judgment day today? Would you give us greater trust in your timing of that? And God, might you turn some to faith and repentance this morning. Might they embrace you and love you as God, King, treasure, Christ, Lord, Savior, Redeemer. Might they see you as victor over their sin, the one who will stand in their place at the day of judgment and say, I'm declaring this person righteous. Sarah, she's mine. Mike, he's mine. John, he's mine. Might you bring people to the assurance of faith this morning faith that saves and sustains us. And God, as we observe your supper, as we're nourished by the saving benefits of your broken body and shed blood, might that be such good news to us today that because of your broken body, because of your shed blood, justice has been fulfilled and will ultimately be fully fulfilled in the judgment day to come. May we rest there. God, we long for you to return. But as of now, help us to be faithful, good ambassadors and agents of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.